kind of waiting for my cough drop to dissolve. <laughs> my fault. So I was kind of waiting for my cough drop to dissolve. I think it just melted. <laughs> good morning. I hope you all slept really well. It's good to see your faces, even those that are way back there. I'm really glad that we're here together and trust that God is going to use our time together. I'd like to just start with a little bit of spiritual development information for us. You know, as we are growing as humans, we all know about child development and human development, but we don't talk very much about spiritual development, but we all go through different stages of spiritual development, too. And one of those very important spiritual um, development stages is when we discover that God is not Santa Claus, or we discover that he is not the myth that we were taught in Sunday school, or what we internalize from what we were taught, because often we create God in our own image, and what we want him to be. And so in our 20s or in our 30s, when life looks different than what we expected it, and we start to discover this adult life is harder than I thought it was going to be, or there's a lot of injustice, or there's a lot of, of crime, there's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of, of people just being nasty. And we start to discover that, and we start to discover that God doesn't always respond to those situations that we find ourselves in the way we would like. We can have a crisis of faith. And that is actually a very good thing. It is a holy moment of transforming God who was created in our own image into the real true Father God. But it can leave some of us a little shaken. Some of us decide, well, if God doesn't do what I think he is going to do, then I will settle. I'll just stay in this religious relationship, but I'm not going to expect very much. Some people get very disappointed. Some people get very hurt and bitter. Some people get angry enough to leave their faith behind. Some people decide that there's got to be more. I must have misunderstood. I've got to press into God's word. I've got to figure this out. And they start pressing through and wrestling with God to find the answers to their questions. And they come out on the other side strong and firmly rooted in God's word. They're no longer believing a myth, but they're believing truth about who God is. But it's a hard stage, and we go through it multiple times. It's not just one time and we're done, but we find our faith over and over and over again as we face different challenges that we have to work through. So my friend Mary, she serves in um, Africa, and she and her husband had a son after years of infertility, and then they waited and they waited and they waited for the second child. And after a few years, she finally got pregnant, but then she miscarried. And then about nine months later, she got pregnant again, and she miscarried again. And then about nine months later, she got pregnant again, and she carried the baby full term. And the day before she was going to travel to a place that would be safe for her to have the baby, she realized she hadn't felt any movement for a long time. She'd kind of been oblivious to it. And so she went to the clinic. They had to drive eight hours. Went to the clinic. 
then the baby was stillborn. What does God do in situations like that? How do we handle those kinds of situations when our prayers are not answered the way we had hoped? I have a friend in my, my town in Inglewood, New Jersey, and our tax dollars do not work for us. They seem to work for everybody else in administration. They do not work for our town. And so our schools are really hurting. Our, our streets and infrastructure are really hurting. But Nicole, two Novembers ago, realized that as the seniors were starting to apply for college and grants and scholarships, she realized that their, um, their credits were not matching their actual records. The school had transitioned to a computerized program and it was spitting out totals that were much lower GPAs and much fewer credit hours. And so she went to the administration and she explained what was happening and the administration gave her and the other seven counselors permission to one by one go through all of the um, records and manually correct them but to make sure everything was right. About four months later, the school board put them on suspension for altering records. And these children who were applying for college and scholarships and grants were missing out. And so it's been a year and it's almost been two years now, coming up in March. And just two weeks ago, the school board, um, they have fired everybody they could fire. They have um, my friend Nicole on suspension, and right now they're going after her teacher's license and her tenure. And there's no justice for the children. She has been crying out to the Lord for a couple years about this situation. What does she do when this is such a huge no that's going to affect her whole career? And she's, she knows it's affecting kids that she deeply loves and was entrusted to care for. What do we do with God's notes when they make no sense? My nephew, Neil, has my father's kidney disease, polycystic kidney disease. My father died when he was 36. And my sister, Neil's mom, died when she was just 50 of the same disease. Neil, when he was 19 years old, he was working between school years at a construction site and a, a wall that they were putting up fell and it crushed his neck. And not only does he have polycystic kidney disease, he's also a quadriplegic. And for all these years, because he's 39 now, um, we've been praying for a kidney donor for him. His kidneys are supposed to be the size of your fist, but they're the size of two giant footballs. And he's in constant pain. Where is God when we keep waiting for answers to prayer? Where is he? He just got a fistula put in this week, which means he can go on dialysis as soon as they remove his kidneys. Still no donor in sight. So what do we do? What do we do when God says no or not yet? Or answers in ways that we just cannot really handle. So we're going to look at two people today who were driven to prayer in Luke 7, 1 to 17. <clears throat> and you've got that scripture in your little notebook there. God, as we come to you and look at this story, 
that has you at the center of it. We ask that you would teach us. Give us your truth. Help there to be no lies spoken or heard. And please protect and deliver this time from evil and accomplish your purposes in each of our lives. Help us to be very attentive to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There were a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. (coughs) Excuse me. You have been so gracious about my voice, so I'm trying not to worry about my cough. So let's look at the centurion. He was an unwelcomed military leader in Israel. He was an invader. He was a conqueror. But he was also a man who was compassionate towards the community he oversaw. When his servant was ill, he cared about it. And he asked others to go to Jesus on his behalf and ask Jesus to come to his house. But then he must have had a change of heart at some point, and he didn't want to ask Jesus to come to his home. We aren't sure why, scripture doesn't tell us, but maybe he felt it was presumptuous to ask Jesus to leave the crowds of people who were pressing in on him to come and spend individual time with him in his home. Maybe somebody had clued him into the fact that Jews do not go to Gentiles' home. Maybe somebody had said that there were these really strict cleanliness practices, religious separation rules that kept them apart from the Gentiles. For whatever reason, he sent additional friends to Jesus and said, you don't need to come. 
I know that you can heal my servant. Just tell the illness to go away. Now when Jesus heard the friends speak on the centurion's behalf, he was stunned. He said, never have I found such faith in Israel. And from a distance, Jesus healed the servant. The centurion's intercessory prayer, which is the prayer we pray, the prayer we pray on behalf of others, was bold, it was confident, it was imaginative, and it was full of faith. The second person in this short passage had a completely, completely different story. Jesus came upon the widow outside of a city gate, the city of Nain. She was weeping. There was a crowd with her. They were mourning the death of her only child. And while the centurion could imagine the healing of his servant, she could not imagine her son living again. And while the centurion had words to say, even though he chose to say them through other people, she only had her tears. Her prayer was grief, without hope, without words, without confidence, without imagination, and no faith. Sometimes you and I can imagine just exactly what we want Jesus to do. We can clearly see the problem that we are confronted with, and we can imagine the answer that needs to happen, and we can tell God exactly what we think he should do to solve the problem. We share our prayer requests with each other. We pray with one another. We invite people to join with us in prayer. We storm heaven with our requests. We tell God exactly how we want him to solve our problem. We pray with imagination. We pray with confidence. We pray with boldness. We pray with faith. And then those are, there are those other times when we have no idea how to pray. We have no words. We have no imagination. Our prospects look so incredibly bleak. We have prayed over and over again. Our hearts are broken. Our knees are raw from kneeling. Our voice is hoarse from calling out to God. We weep. All we have are tears. We have no imagination. We have no words. We have no faith. We have no confidence. If we were to draw a line representing faith between 1 and 10, one of these prayers would land on a 10 for amazing faith. And one of these would land on 1 for no faith. And yet, both of them were honest, authentic prayers. They were real prayers. Jesus heard the centurion's words. He saw the widow's tears. He sees our tears. He answered the spoken prayer request, and he answered the unspoken prayer request. He answered the prayer that had faith, and he answered the prayer that had no faith. He answered the one who could imagine the need being met, and the one who had given up on the need. He answered perfectly for both of them. 
These two contrasting stories illustrate perfectly the confusing mystery of prayer. We go to passages like this and we take them apart and we look for clues. How can I pray better? What is the mystery of prayer? If I would do this, this, and this, is God then going to do what I want him to do? But we look at a passage like this and we realize there isn't a formula. God is God. God is going to do what he wants to do. He will answer our prayers his way. He is compassionate, he is wise, and we can trust him. But we're not going to be able to tame him by our behavior, even our prayer behavior. So we can become confused about prayer. So many of our prayers are answered. We have so many blessings, so many opportunities to testify to the wonderful things that God has done, and we're very thankful for them. And then there are those other times when it seems like the dearest, most important prayer, the thing that we care the most about, he said no to. That's the one you're going to say no to God, that one. We may say, you know, if God would only answer this one prayer, I would be so happy. He can do whatever he wants with these, and I will praise him. But just this one prayer, could he please say yes to this? If he did it, our empty arms would be full. Our broken relationships would be restored. And our children would be healthy and happy and living productive life. There would be peace on earth. We may struggle with the mystery of prayer. And, you know, Scripture tells us to pray. We follow the models like yesterday's model of prayer. Over and over we read stories of how God answers prayer. So it is hard to know what to think when our prayers go unanswered or are answered in ways that are different than what we wanted. But in this story, God answers these two prayers so positively. But there's more people in these stories than just the centurion and the widow. Let's go back and look at the stories. Besides the centurion and the widow, who else do you see? Well, we see the elders of the Jews. What do you think they were thinking, the elders of the Jews, as they observed the centurion's need and his ask? He was an outsider. He was an invader. So not a Jew. Did they wonder at his nerve at even asking Jesus for the healing of his servant? Were they shocked that Jesus answered an outsider's prayer? What about their needs, the unmet desires of their hearts? Did this seem unjust, unfair, unholy, unJewish to them? Sometimes we have that same feeling when we compare our prayers to other prayers and we're like, now this is something you hear all the time, especially with infertility. It's like, this little girl can get pregnant, she doesn't want the child, and I've been waiting years for the child. That same tone, right? You're answering, she's not even asking, and you're answering, you're blessing her, and I'm sitting here longing and praying. What about the friends in verse 6? The disciples and the people who were traveling with Jesus. Did they have needs? 
people they would like to see healed? Do they look on and see this all happening and in their hearts feel jealous? Envious? Do they feel ignored, unseen, unheard, abandoned? We don't hear of their prayers being answered. The widow was surrounded by friends, a gallery of people watching her life and watching as Jesus brought her son back to life. Did they wonder, if you can bring her son back to life, why in the world did you let her husband die? Don't you know this is a male-dominated society? A woman depends on her husband. She needs her husband to be somebody. If you can bring her son back to life, why did you let her husband die? Why did you let my husband die? Why did you let my son die? Why didn't you come along when I needed you and raise my child to life again? There were a lot of people in Luke 7. Let's be real. Prayer is a mystery. We love it when God responds with a yes. And we hurt with disappointment when he tells us no. And we compare our prayers to the prayers of others. And we can feel frustration, anger, and bitterness. And we can be so annoyed that other people get to celebrate a yes and we're left with a no. But people, ladies, Jesus gets this. He understands this feeling because he got a huge no too. After all, he was in agony in the garden when he prayed to be released from the task of dying for yours and my sins on that very cruel cross. He asked God to be released, and he wasn't. And he knows what it's like to feel abandoned, because you know that on the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Have you ever said, God, I thought you would show up by now. God, where are you? This seems pretty late to me. My God, my God, I'm feeling abandoned. Save my loved ones. Save me from this situation. Where are you in this? Jesus understands that prayer. So how do we respond when God says no to our prayers? I have a favorite passage that I go to when God says no to me. It reminds me that it is okay to be real about loss, about disappointment, the frustration and anger and grief that I feel. This passage also reminds me that there is more than I see and feel, more than my unanswered prayers. I'm not a real um, coordinated person. I'm kind of clumsy. I've fallen three times on the back of my head, which resulted in a skull fracture one time and a concussion, and a concussion two other times. I live with a headache all the time. My head just always hurts, and it has since about 2001. I have been prayed for so many times. I've been anointed by oil by people like Dallas Willard, and I have not been healed. In fact, one time, when actually it was when Dallas was praying for me, as he was making the cross with oil on my forehead, I heard, not yet, not yet. 
What do we do when God says no to our prayers or we're made to wait a long time? Well, Habakkuk taught me how to think about unanswered prayers. And so this is why I'm sharing it with you. Habakkuk, as you know, was a prophet in Judah. And throughout his book, Habakkuk was honest about what was going to happen. Life was about to get as ugly as it could get. I mean, the horror that he describes in his book is really unimaginable to us, except that we see it on our news all the time from places like Syria. Habakkuk was terrified. Habakkuk knew that God was going to use the Babylonians to punish the people of Judah for their sins against God. And in his book about the coming judgment, Habakkuk wrote to let his readers know exactly what kind of horror they could expect. But he also wrote with another purpose. He wrote because he wanted his readers to know that there would be more than judgment. He wanted them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there would be more than being defeated, more than being taken into captivity, more than seeing family and friends killed mercilessly, more than suffering. And this has been the truth of my headache. My headache does not define me. I forget about it during the day. At the end of the day, when I'm thanking God for my day, I think, oh, how did I do that? That was pretty amazing. Thank you, God. That's more than being defeated. That's more than the suffering. That's what our God wants to give us, and that's what Habakkuk wrote about. He wrote to remind his readers that God would sustain those who trusted in him, even in the horror. Have you, have you experienced his sustaining power in a horror or a hard time that you have had to face, maybe even right now? Habakkuk wanted his readers to know that God would deliver them someday. Have you ever experienced being delivered after a long time of suffering? He wanted them to know that Babylon was eventually going to get it. They were going to be judged too. Even though God was using them to judge Judea, they were going to be judged too. Justice was coming. Habakkuk wrote because he wanted to show that worship is possible even in horror. Have you been able to worship in whatever state you find yourself in? And even though he wrote these assurances and believed them, he wrote them while he was terrified. He doesn't deny his emotional response to what he knew was coming. He wrote that his heart pounded and his legs trembled. He felt decay creeping into his bones. And then he prayed a prayer that was real. It was authentic. It leaned into the horror that was coming while holding on to hope. Ladies, we need to hold on to our hope. Not that our circumstances are going to be resolved, but that God is with us. He was able, between this place of horror and hope, he was able to worship and praise. So let me read Habakkuk 3, 16 to 19 to you. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, in other words, though we are going to starve, 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet, though we are going to starve, though we are going to watch each other die a slow death, though we're going to see our children hungry, though we're going to watch our loved ones giving up food for themselves so other people can have a little bit more, though all of this is going to happen, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me weak like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk knew that he could trust in the Lord, even in the horror that was coming. He trusted in God to sustain him, to hold together those who trusted in him in the coming destruction. Do you ever feel like you're going to fall into a, a million zillion pieces? You know God is holding you to his heart, but he's also holding you together. And Habakkuk knew this. <laughs> the suffering that Habakkuk knew was coming, the, the suffering that you and I go through, can draw us deeper into God. It can take us to a place of deeper worship and praise, the place we need to go when God says no to us or answers in ways that we would never choose. If you were to put Habakkuk's prayer into your own words, what would be the fig tree that doesn't blossom? What is no fruit on the vines for you? When I put Habakkuk's prayer into my own words, I'm able to be real about unanswered prayer or the prayer that wasn't answered the way I wanted it. And from that place of being honest and authentic and naming my disappointments, naming my horror, I can move into praise. I go from lament to praise and worship. And it's authentic because I have been real about my loss, real about my horror, and I can praise because my Father God is holy, just. He transcends everything and He is with us. I can draw near to Him and praise and worship. This is very, 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 very real to me. And I'm about to tell a story that is very hard for me to tell. And that's why I have my tissue here. I hope I don't need it. But, as you know, we were global workers in Venezuela. We were there for 10 years. For seven of those years before we moved into the jungle, we lived in a small provincial town. The schools in our town were not well equipped. The teachers were political appointments. The children basically taught themselves while the teachers played cards out in the courtyard. And so I homeschooled my two children. And little by little, my little homeschool grew. And other parents asked to have their children homeschooling with us. So my role was a pilot's wife. So I was on the radio a lot during the day, writing down where the pilots were, taking off landing, how many passengers, how long en route, what checkpoints they were going over. There were also people coming to my door, knocking, asking for a cup of cold water, or a high school student saying, I don't know what this English word is. Can you please just help me for a few minutes? Or whatever. There was also people almost three or four nights a week coming for dinner, people who were on my husband's plane who needed a place to eat that night. So there was food preparation going on. 
I tried to keep my eyes on the kids. I was with them as much as I could, but I wasn't in the room 24-7. I thought one of the students was a bully, and so I asked them to always play with their, or be with the doors open. I didn't want them to be secluded. And I talked to my children about what to do if somebody hurt them, and that we would intervene and help them. But one of the students was a bully. And between the years of my daughter's six and seven years old, um, she was sexually abused almost every day by one of the older students who was in her home. And the student was able to terrorize her, and it's a long story, so that even though we had told her she could tell us, she took on the responsibility of saving our family, saving my husband's job, and saving all the people in the plane that she saw him rescue every single day. And she took on that responsibility. We did not find out about the abuse until she was 21 years old in college, and um, she, she actually wanted to take a year off of college and go out to Indonesia and go to Santani and be an intern at the school there just to find out if she would like to be a teacher and to serve other um, children of global workers. But when she went to MAF and she went through their psychological testing, they found that she was suffering from PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And she didn't know why. She had buried it deeply. So she went through a year and a half of counseling before it was finally revealed to her what was going on, and then she had to tell us. And our world shattered, broke. I was destroyed. I felt like the worst failure. I had allowed in my home, on my watch, on a daily basis for a year and a half, my daughter to be hurt. And though I had had suspicions and had taken precautions, I had never imagined this. And I was destroyed. Over the years, God put our family back together again through help of counseling and, and just lots of prayer and talking. My daughter is a healthy 39-year-old. She lives in Singapore. She's married. She's in a good place in her faith, which is an amazing part, and this is the part I want you to hear. My daughter still has faith, even though every night when she was a child, we would thank God that he had taken care of her through the day, and she would know that he hadn't. She would know that she was living a no. She would know she was living an unanswered prayer as a six and seven year old. I have no clue how she still has faith, but she does, she does. And in this place of having faith, we surrender and we choose to praise and worship even when we do not understand. Have I forgiven? It's an ongoing process. This is years and years later. And this happened in my 20s, and I'm, I'm 64. So I still, when these thoughts come to my mind, I still have to go through the forgiving process and release this person, because I don't want to live captured by what happens. We face really, really hard things in life. 
prayers that seem unanswered, prayers that are answered in ways that we would never choose. Jesus faced horror and death. His prayer in the garden was not answered the way he wanted it to be answered, and yet he submitted himself to God. He entrusted himself to the Father and drew close to God and surrendered his will to him. Mary, his mother, a woman that we deeply esteem, prayed a prayer of surrender when she said to the angel after he announced her pregnancy, let it be to me as you will. Let it be to me as you will. Those are incredibly hard words for us to pray. They're not easy. They're not cheap. They come with a huge price. Jesus prayed it. Can we pray it? Habakkuk prayed it. Can we pray it? So to all of us, I want to ask, women with broken hearts, women with anxious hearts, women with doubts and questions, fears, anxieties, maybe even anger and bitterness, will we still worship when our prayers are answered in ways that we would never choose? Will we choose to pray Habakkuk's prayer? If you will, would you please join with me now in praying it? (laughs) Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on ice. God so graciously, so generously, so abundantly answers so many of our prayers. But that's not our focus today. That's for another day. Our focus today on how do we live with our unanswered prayers? How do we live with God when he says no? Can we entrust ourselves and our unanswered prayers to him? Are you living something that feels like a horror to you right now? Or maybe it's not a horror. Maybe it's just a really hard thing, a difficulty, something that hurts or disappoints you. Can you entrust yourself to God? Can you worship him from a place that says, let it be to me as you will? God wants to hold you. He has a huge lap. There's room for every single one of us on his lap. He wants to hold you together. He wants to care for you. He wants to sustain you in the good times, in the hard times, in the times of need. Will we entrust ourselves to him and worship him when he says yes and when he says no? I've asked Carrie to come and lead us in this song, I Will Trust, one more time. And as we sing that prayer, I want you to consider what is it that you need to entrust to him? What do you want to lay down at his feet? 